We're continuing in our study of the tabernacle and the tabernacle furnishings, the furniture of it. We started in the most holy place, which was the furthest west, and then there's the Ark of the Covenant, and we worked our way eastward to the holy place, and we saw that in there there is the table of the bread of the presence and the lampstand on each side as you enter. Together they form a united picture. Now we're in the outer court, which all the people of Israel were allowed to come into, not just the priests. And we studied last week the bronze altar, which together with its sacrifices forms, again, though those elements are distinguishable, one indivisible picture. Between the altar, which was right in the center of the outer court of the tabernacle, and the entrance to the holy place, there was this bronze basin. And as we just read in Exodus chapter 30, verses 17 to 21, the priests had to wash at this bronze basin as they leave the outer court to go into the holy place, or as they leave the holy place to go offer a sacrifice on the altar. So there's this washing that happens. And the symbolism of washing is familiar to Christians. In fact, elemental. Let me, sorry, I'm saying elementary. It's basic. It's very elementary. For example, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, right? Or as we sang tonight, just now, from Psalm 51 and verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Or the familiar passage from Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Another passage should come to mind too when we think of the symbolism of washing. Namely, Jesus' washing of the disciples' feet in John chapter 13. We know that we have a need to be cleansed. And we know that it is in Christ and through Christ and by Christ that we are cleansed. We get this at a basic level. We understand this. But... Do we properly distinguish between and meditate on the various ways in which we need to be cleansed? Many times our ideas remain vague and general. We need cleansing, Christ cleanses us, that's where we stop. We just leave it at that general level. But we should endeavor to think with the specificity and in the with the diversity of scripture about our cleansing. Scripture doesn't only speak about our cleansing in a vague and general way, nor does scripture speak of our cleansing in a monolithic way, but the scripture speaks with specificity and with diversity about our cleansing. And we should endeavor to think then about our cleansing in the specificity and diversity with which the scripture speaks to it. And our cleansing, according to the Bible, is multifaceted. There are, I'm going to say, several ways in which the Bible speaks about our cleansing, but for the purposes of tonight, we'll limit it to to two. 
because we're not trying to systematically study cleansing and scripture. We're trying to study the Bronze Basin and the specific cleansing that the, bon the Bronze Basin foreshadows and signifies. And it will help to contrast that with another type of cleansing. So we'll look at two today. But really what's in view is just this cleansing foreshadowed and signified by the Bronze Basin. So for the purposes of our, our study tonight, two manners of cleansing. First, there is the cleansing that happens once for all when we believe the Gospel. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. This is the glorious truth that we proclaim in the Gospel, that we have believed in the Gospel, that there is a cleansing available once for all time. Instantaneous, not progressive. And it happens at the beginning of the Christian life. Rather than being a goal that we hope to attain to at some point. The song does not go, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners have the opportunity to wash thoroughly enough in that fountain to gradually and progressively get rid of all their guilty stains. Not only does that not have quite the same ring to it, and therefore wouldn't make quite as nice of a song, but it would actually be theologically incorrect also to sing that. Paul writes in Romans 8.1, after finishing chapter 7, by talking about this conflict that he experiences within himself, the things I do, I don't want to do, and the things I don't do, I do. His ongoing struggle with sin, he admits that he's a sinner. O oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he says, there is therefore now. Right in the middle of that struggle, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't have to wait for no condemnation until we stop struggling. Right in the middle of the struggle, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is a fountain filled with blood and the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. Though he couldn't, didn't have time to make things right, to get better, to improve, he rejoiced to see that fountain in his day because why? Sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty states. And there have I, though vile as he, past tense, washed all my sins away. Or as the, there's some variation in the lyrics as it's come down to us. There may I, though vile as he. That's sung in a more evangelistic sense. There may you, unbeliever, Though as vile as that dying thief on the cross, wash all your sins away. There is this once and for all cleansing that we may receive, that we may experience. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And while we find this law at work in us, that the things I want to do, I don't do. 
the things I don't do, don't want to do, these I do, right then, right there, in our messiness, in our sin, we may wash, and we may find that there is therefore now, right in the middle of it all, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We read in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 17, Paul writing to the believers in Corinth, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. By implication though, if Christ has been raised, your faith is not futile and you are not still in your sins. You see, they've been washed away. In that fountain filled with blood, you've been cleansed already. We're not waiting for the judgment seat of Christ to see if we will be cleansed. Or if we have been cleansed enough, you see? If Christ has been raised, your faith is not futile and you are not still in your sins. There is therefore now, in our imperfect life, in the midst of the remaining corruption, no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, a little bit earlier in the book, we read Paul writing to them. You were past tense, washed. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 11. You were sanctified. You were justified. When we come to Christ in the first place, for the first time, we are washed then and there. We receive His imputed righteousness. And we give over to Him our dirtiness, so to speak. And He carries it away as that scapegoat in Leviticus 16, upon whom all the dirtiness of the people of Israel was placed. Jesus goes like that scapegoat outside the camp and carries it away. And we are cleansed. Our sin is expiated and we are cleansed. The wrath of God is propitiated we are clothed in Christ's imputed righteousness. We are justified. We are regenerated. Made new inside. We are cleansed in God's eyes. Right there at the beginning of the Christian life. And everlastingly and unchangingly so. We cannot be declared righteous in God's sight for the merit of Christ imputed to us and then have that transaction reversed. Otherwise, we could never read there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That wouldn't even be a logical statement. We could read, we hope that there won't be any more condemnation. We're, we're working hard so that there will therefore now be no condemnation. But we could just never read the bald statement, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We could never read, you are not still in your sins. We could never read, you were washed. It would go against the logic of the gospel, which is that we are saved by grace, apart from conditions met. If we could have our justification reversed and rescinded, now, I can never be. With respect to this first type of cleansing, 
Those who have trusted in Christ are already clean. In John chapter 15 and verse 2, Jesus speaks about this type of cleansing when he says to the disciples, You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. By believing, trusting Jesus' message, the revelation that Jesus brings to us, we become clean. That's the first kind of cleansing that we need. But second, there is a cleansing that we need over and over again. And it was important for me to give you that first type of cleansing so that we could talk meaningfully about the second without getting confused about the gospel. There is, notwithstanding that first type of cleansing that we need once for all at the beginning of the Christian life, there is a sort of cleansing that we need over and over again. Jesus teaches us in what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer that we are to ask for our daily bread, which implies that the prayer is paradigmatic of a daily prayer. It's intended to show us the sort of prayer that we are to pray daily. In other words, whether we use the exact words of the Lord's Prayer or not, that's besides the point, we are to be consciously dependent upon and asking God day by day for the necessities of life. We're to be calling out to Him daily for our bread. And in the Lord's Prayer, we read not only that we should be asking God for bread, and implicitly, day by day, asking God for bread, but we also read, forgive us our trespasses. Which implies, if we're to be praying this prayer daily, looking for daily bread, that we should also be looking for daily forgiveness from our trespasses. As often as we pray for bread, we should be praying for the forgiveness of sins. Which is over and over again. You don't just have a feast one day and just be like, well, I'm set. Right? You, you go over to visit a friend. They offer you some food. You say, no. That matter was settled long ago. I ate. There is, therefore now, no hunger. Right? You don't do that. We recognize that we need to eat over and over again. And there is a sense in which we also need to be forgiven over and over again. That initial cleansing was settled once for all. There is therefore now no condemnation. But there is a sense in which we need ongoing forgiveness. In the first place, when we trust in Christ, God becomes our Father as we enter into a new relationship with Christ. But when we pray for our daily forgiveness, we begin our prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven. Which means that the sin that we are about to confess hasn't lost us our place in the family. You see, in the first place, God becomes our Father. But then there's this prayer that we pray over and over again to our Father. We haven't been put out and need, therefore, to re-enter the family over again. We start the prayer with our Father. We're still in. We're in once and for all when we trust in Christ and we remain in when we sin. God is our Father forevermore. 
But our sin affects the family relationships. You need only to think about the way that sin affects your family relationships here and now on this earth to understand this concept. Your family doesn't fragment and disintegrate every time someone sins. You all disown each other. Go through the legal process of disowning one another. Divorcing and, and abandoning and rearranging custody. And, you know, and then you get reconciled and, you know, you get married all over again and you sign custody papers to fix the family. You, you realize it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. You don't disintegrate all these relationships every time someone sins and then fix the relationships every time someone sins. But, though you remain married and though you remain father and son, father and daughter, mother and daughter, mother and son, though you remain family, you realize full well that tension and conflict are introduced into the home when you sin against one another. And so, a certain kind of reconciliation is required. Even though you are family and have been family all along, Nevertheless, there is a certain kind of familial reconciliation that's needed over and over again. So it is with our relationship to God and by extension our brothers and sisters in Christ also. We need a sort of familial cleansing over and over. We need to have family meetings over and over again where we sit down and we say, Father, I've sinned against you. Brother, sister, I've sinned against you. Will you forgive me? We're not beyond the need of familial reconciliation and cleansing. It's that second kind of cleansing, that familial cleansing, which we need over and over again in the Christian life, which is in view tonight. And primarily with respect to our relationship to God, more so than the emphasis being placed with respect to the bronze basin on our relationships with one another. The bronze basin symbolizes our need of cleansing. Obviously, the scripture says, Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. Exodus 30, 19. Which cleansing does the bronze altar symbolize? The once for all cleansing or the over and over again cleansing? Let's consider now the function and the symbolism of the bronze basin. As I mentioned at the beginning, the bronze basin was essentially a bowl with water in it placed between the bronze altar in the outer corner of the tabernacle and the entrance westward to the holy place. So in between the entrance to the holy place and the bronze altar was the bronze basin. It may have, in fact, it most likely did have utensils like bowls and pouring cups or pitchers or whatever assigned to it so that the water source could remain clean even as priest after priest used the water to wash. Obviously, you can only dip bloody hands and dusty feet into a basin so many times before it becomes useless to use that basin to clean yourself anymore. So most likely the, me 
the mechanics of it was that a priest would go and dip a utensil in and pour. Perhaps two priests would help one another. Pouring water over the hands. Pouring water upon the feet. And thus the water in the basin would remain clean even as the priests washed at the basin throughout the day. Whatever the mechanics of it though, the function was clearly to wash the dusty feet and the bloody hands of the priests as they come to and from the altar of the holy place pardon me, the altar as they come to and fro from the altar to the holy place and then back again. Throughout the day they had to stop and wash at this bronze basin over and over again as they perform their priestly functions. What sort of cleansing then does this represent? The once for all cleansing or the over and over again cleansing? When you start to break it down and think about it like this, it's intuitive. This was the over and over again cleansing. The priests had already been symbolically cleansed once for all with the blood from the altar on the day of their ordination, which you can read about just one chapter prior in Exodus chapter 29. They didn't go through their ordination over and over again. They were set apart, which is another way of saying they were sanctified once for all at the beginning of their priestly ministry. And it was by the blood of the animal sacrifices, the substitutes, that they were symbolically cleansed once for all at the beginning of their priestly work at their ordination in Exodus 29. But they're not beyond the need of cleansing in any and every sense whatsoever from that day forth. Rather, though they are once for all clean, ordained, consecrated, they don't stop being priests every time that they get dirty. They get dusty feet, however, and bloody hands every day. In fact, many times a day. And need to wash. Does this sound somewhat familiar, conceptually? It wasn't all that long ago. A number of months ago, sure, but within recent memory that we were in John 13 in our Sunday morning service and we were looking at Jesus washing of the disciples feet in the upper room and what did Jesus say to Peter the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet in other words you don't just shower over and over and over and over again. You bathe in the morning, presumably. <laughs> I hope. I know Beijing's love to bathe in the evening too. Maybe in the middle of the day. <laughs> Maybe at evening time. <laughs> but look, we all we all know, we all understand the concept. You don't you don't bathe every time that you have to use the bathroom. You don't bathe every time that you get some grease on your hands while you're preparing a meal or fixing a car and get a little bit of motor oil on your hands. You don't bathe your whole body every time 
there's some contamination to your hands. We have also a concept called washing your hands. It's not foreign to us, right? So we get it. You do need to bathe. In the ancient Middle East, of course, you wouldn't have bathed in the morning and in the evening and in the middle of the day and at the evening time and so on and so forth. We have the luxury of running water in our homes. But of course, in, in that day and age, it would be much more customary to bathe once for the day at the beginning. And then as the day goes, you wash your dusty feet. This is what Jesus is telling Peter in John chapter 13. The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. The concept represented then by the foot washing of the disciples and the concept represented by the bronze basin is that though we are regenerated, justified, and welcomed into God's family, cleansed in a very real sense, once for all, at the beginning of the Christian life, we nevertheless continue to sin and therefore we get dirty over and over again. And we need to wash regularly. Let me attempt to press this point home, which is the big idea of tonight's message. Though God is holy and requires us to wash, God is gracious and makes provision for us to wash. Therefore, wash regularly. God required the priests to wash. How serious was he about it? Look at verse 20. When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. Whoa. Or verse 21. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. We've, we've all heard, right? You can't come sit down at this dinner table until you wash. Right? You can't go to bed until you wash. You can't come in here until you wash, right? But have you ever heard a parent or a grandparent say, wash right now or I'll kill you? <laughs> you see, the Lord takes this to a whole other level. He's very serious about this washing. God required the priests to wash so they wouldn't die. And what is emphasized here is not, is not so much God's concern for hygiene, although certainly that's part and parcel that the Lord wanted them to wash after they offered a bloody sacrifice. But what is what necessitates the severity and the gravity of this command is what is symbolically represented to us. That we cannot continue in our sins while we call God our Father and own Him as our God. We must purify ourselves as He is pure. As it is written, Be holy as I am holy, says the Lord. We must wash 
if we take God's name upon us. We must repent of our sins. We must confess our sins. We must pursue holiness. For there is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. God will not be trifled with and let us take His name upon ourselves lightly. If we call ourselves by the name of God, if we own the title Christian, then we must wash. We must confess our sins. We must get things right with Him. He will not be played with. He will not be trifled with. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. There are wicked men, as Jude says, who pervert the grace of God and turn it into a license for immorality. Therefore, if we go on sinning deliberately, the author of Hebrews says, there remains no hunger a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. You see how many verses there are like this? That God doesn't play. If people think that they can just pray the sinner's prayer, sign some card, and then just go on and live a reckless life and just plead free grace, that doesn't fly with God. God is very serious. about the fact that the right way to live is not just looking back at a once and for all cleansing, but also involves a continual confession of sin and asking for forgiveness and a reconciliation and a repentance and a holiness. God's holiness requires us to wash. And God's very serious about that. The threat, so they may not die, emphasizes God's holiness. That this command is not optional. But God made provision for the priests to wash, you see. It's not as if the priests had to say, but where are we going to wash in the middle of this desert? As we wander around the wilderness for 40 years, where are we supposed to wash? God put a basin right there. Wash there. He gave them somewhere to wash, even as He gave them the command to wash. And this represents His graciousness. Though you must wash, you may wash. Here's where you wash. Jesus is the basin in which we must regularly wash. And Jesus is the basin in whom we may regularly wash, so to speak. At the end of 1 John chapter 1, the Apostle says, I write these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father.
You see? We go in the name of Jesus, pleading the merit of Jesus, with the advocacy of Jesus supporting our request. And we say, our Father who art in heaven, forgive us our trespasses. And if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Lord is not okay with us going on sinning deliberately and just talking about how once saved, always saved, brother. The Lord is not okay with us perverting the grace of God and turning it into a license for immorality. Hey, it's all by grace, man. The Lord is not okay with us going on sinning that grace may increase. We're the people that really get grace. We realize how free we are in Christ. So we don't worry too much about this holiness stuff and this obedience stuff. That's legalistic. We're all about grace. Now, God's not cool with that. God requires us not just to rely on some experience that supposedly happened years and years ago, but to keep short accounts with Him. He knows we're going to sin. If anyone says he's without sin, he's a liar. He makes God a liar. God knows we're going to sin. He knows we have remaining corruption. He's counted us as righteous for Christ's sake. Because of the imputed righteousness of Christ that we're wearing around us as a robe. We're in His family. He accepts us, but He wants us day by day to come and say, Father, forgive me my trespasses for Christ's sake. He requires that of us. That's what the Christian life actually looks like. The legitimate, genuine Christian life. It's not meritorious. We're not saved because of this daily cleansing. If you have truly been washed in the first place, part of what that washing entails is a renewal of your nature such that you will actually want to turn from your sins and grow in righteousness and confess your sins. So you can't, you can't really lose that initial cleansing you already had by virtue of not doing a daily cleansing good enough. That's not how it works. This is why I wanted to stress at the beginning there really is this definitive once-for-all cleansing that can't be rescinded, it can't be taken back, so on and so forth. But we don't, my point is, we don't therefore on that basis say, well, I'm not going to worry about the daily cleansing. That's not how it works. That, that, that's, not, that's not just a subpar way of being a Christian. That's not really being a Christian at all. We must wash. We must go to God over and over again for cleansing. We must keep short accounts with Him. We must turn away from our sin and pursue Righteousness. The Lord threatens here so that they may not die. He doesn't, he's not to be trifled with. We have to watch. But he has provided for us an advocate if we do sin. He reassures us if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus is 
the one who opened, therefore, a fountain filled with blood that we could wash in in the first place. Once for all. But Jesus is also that basin for daily cleansing that we wash in over and over again. We must wash both in the first place and we must wash over and over again. But we may wash because of Jesus. There's a fountain filled with blood and there's a bronze basin filled with water. So let us wash over and over again in Jesus.